You're tuned in to listener-supported community radio. Come on over to Rhythm Shack with Mike Fisher for high-energy roots rock, Americana, jam bands, blues, and more. Every second and fifth Monday from 3 to 5.30 a.m. That's Rhythm Shack here on 90.7 FM, KBOO Portland, and KBOO.FM. And welcome to another episode of Arab Voices, coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston since 2002. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. This show is syndicated and it airs on other radio stations in different states in the U.S. The Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston held the AAEF Paul Cardouche Annual Memorial Lecture on November 11, 2021 at the University of Houston. The lecture was titled Damascus, A History in Words, and the speaker was Professor Dana Sajdi, a prominent historian teaching at Boston College. She is the author of The Barber of Damascus, Novo Literacy in the 18th Century Ottoman Levant, and the editor of Ottoman Talib's Ottoman Coffee, Leisure, and Lifestyle in the 18th Century. Her current book project, in defense of Damascus, Arabic textual city spaces, offers a new history of the venerable city between the 12th and 20th centuries, drawing on a long and uninterrupted tradition of prose topographies. I attended that event and recorded it, and will be airing that lecture shortly. I am skipping the introduction by Dr. Abdul Razak Takwiti, Associate Professor and Arab American Educational Foundation Chair in Modern Arab History and Founding Director of the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston, so I can air Dr. Dana Sajdi's lecture in its entirety. Let's listen in. I don't know what to say to start with. You know, I have my thanks written out, but this has so much exceeded whatever I expected from, you know, I give talks all the time, but this has been probably the warmest reception I've ever received. The most generous set of donors, and you'll see how endowments in this talk, how much they contribute to the production of culture and society. And you will really hear that, so thank you. Uh, the Kardushes for this. Abed, I wish it upon everybody in the world who's a good person to be showered by his attention and love. And uh, right, it is, uh, uh, I can't tell you, I've never felt so so loved and, and endeared and taken care of um, like Abed. So I was going to kind of say about Abed how great it is that he invited me, but I, you know, I, it's just so much love. And at the same time, Abed's, of course, activity in the community are very clear. I am very jealous of him 
It's probably partly to his personality that he's able to bring so many people together, but also partly because of the community here. I live in Boston where there are 52 universities within 52 miles. And we have, uh, you know, it's, the intellectual, it's an intellectual center, but we don't have these kinds of events in the way that we have the community and, and the academics from different parts coming together. Uh, also, uh, I want to thank Fadi uh, Qafaiti. Where is he? assistant director he's been running around and emailing me and I've been emailing him the poor guy is just so thank you so much it's so lovely the graduate student and I'm very much looking forward to meeting the graduate students tomorrow is it it's very exciting for me so in addition to meeting all of you Arab Americans Arab immigrants all the academics of the history department um, the Arab, the Arab American uh, Foundation and all of that is just, I feel so, it feels so special to be here, really. I'm, and I'm from all my heart. So I'm skipping all the thank you notes that I have written. And I should not, I, I would be remiss not to uh, mention that in this audience today, I have a relative. Uh, it's a second cousin, Riham Jabri, who's also from Houston. Riham. I, I, the thing is, you know, you know, you have relatives, but the thing about Riham is very special because I am born in the Palestinian territories in Nablus, and uh, I'm not Damascene. Everybody thinks I'm Syrian because I work on Damascus all the time. But it is precisely because we could, used to visit Riham and her family as kids that I became an honorary Syrian, basically. And it just shows you that uh, that you know, without the colonial lines that divide us. Uh, uh, marriages are always uh, between all these countries that we're all one family so it's just lovely to see Rihan here um, so my talk to, or at least the beginning of my talk today is going to be very untraditional because I will not start by giving you a thesis and telling you what I'm gonna do next what I'm going to do is um, I am going to take time to describe Damascus in my own words, merged with words of people from past times. And because I don't want to spend time saying quote unquote the whole time, I am just going to show on the PowerPoint when I'm quoting something to see that that's the citation and which century it is and who the person is. So I want you to try to listen without knowing what I'm gonna do. I hope uh, I will not bore you. But the whole point is about words, right? And so I want you to listen to uh, the following. Imagine you are flying across the Mediterranean until you reach the exact middle of the Eastern Mediterranean coast. You see the thick pines and cedar forests of the Lebanon mountains. Then the landscape will gradually turn arid. The undulating mountain tops harshness is accentuating by shades of white, ochre, and yellow. You descend on the side of Mount Qasyun, and by now, when you descend and you're walking. Forget about flying right now. <laughs> um, uh, Mount Qasyun. Um, it is hot and dry. The visual effect of barrenness alone makes you thirsty, though you have a flask of water. But this is a sacrificial moment. You are on a pilgrimage. You are visiting ancient sites and caves where biblical prophets themselves blessed the landscape with their trials and travails. You arrive at a place called Ar-Rabwa, 
a site where purportedly God gave the son of Mary and his mother shelter on high ground, a place of rest and security. This, according to one rather creative interpreter of the holy book, Al-Qur'an, um, who decided that this verse was about this place in Damascus. Um, you are prostrate in supplication, hoping that the blessed dirt will stick to your clothes. You look to your left. Below you is endless orange saffron desert. But you turn the corner, and lo and behold, there lies before you, at the bottom of the valley, one of the four heavens on earth. This is Damascus. It is preening in its plush lushness. Fed by the river Balada, originating in the Lebanon mountains, the oasis called Al-Ghuta hugs Damascus with generous abundance. You descend the valley while the sun ignites her fire, but then shade extends itself from every direction. You sip fresh cool water that is more salubrious and delicious than the lips of your lover. You have arrived at the garden of a Naira. It is the season of the roses. And uh, many scholars or ulama, scholars are ulama in Arabic, they abandon their houses and colleges and go on picnics with their books. As one scholar recites his late, latest history composition, a light breeze almost imperceptibly moves the branches of the rose bushes. The leaves shiver. The fragrance is in profusion. Nature distracts our scholar, but he wields it like a weapon. He turns to a companion, a fellow scholar, and challenges him into a competition of impromptu poetry. This is how scholars tested each other's mettle outside the usual institutional process of certification. A good scholar must be a good poet. I would fail right now if, if that was the Such challenges in social decorum and literary skills ensured that scholars remained members of the learned elite. The poor companion fumbles and stumbles, reciting poetry that lacked any creative reworking of the usual image of the rose, graceless words with, without elegance. Later, a third companion gossips. By my life, this kind of base composition often passes among many undiscerning people. The cheeks of the rose are red only due to the embarrassment by such bad poetic composition. But let's leave the pretentious performances of the scholars. You want to see Damascus, the city proper, whose site had been forbidden by its walls. You are told that you can stay at the Venetian Fondoka. Fondoka is Fondoch, as you know, the Venetian Fondoka, where the parties include Venetian diplomats and merchants and their local Muslim friends and involve lots of merrymaking and wine drinking. Or perhaps you will find a caravanserai in the eastern part of the city. You could drink at a Christian tavern or visit the Jewish Farhi family house. You will make your decision later, but of all the seven gates through which you enter the city, you are told that Al Jabiya gate is your best option. You walk a columned part of a street whose name, Ashara al Mustaqim, is translated literally as straight street. Names rarely deceive. This is the direct descendant of its earlier name in the Latin guise, Via Recta. 
This reveals another aspect of the city's past, the whole form of the old intramural Damascus, that is the, the Damascus inside the city walls, and some of its visible ruins signal a Greco-Roman plan. But rather than going straight, you veer to the left to visit the only obvious monumental building in the city, which is not tall, but its sheer mass covers a large area. This is the second earliest surviving mon monument in all of Islamic history, the Umayyad Mosque, the main congregational mosque of the city. Once you are there in the mosque's large courtyard, you are dazzled, almost blinded, by brilliant mural mosaics featuring lush and gilded landscapes, reflecting Damascus's own verdant nature and teasing you with illusions of heavenly paradise. This place has always been the defining and definitive landmark of the city. Having been a sacred site in different guises, the pagan temple of Jupiter, the cathedral of St. John the Baptist, and finally, in the eighth century, the mosque, the sacredness of the site lasted through the Aramean, Assyrian, Chaldean, Persian, Hellenistic, Roman, Byzantine, and Islamic periods. Damascus is one of the oldest continuously inhabited city on earth, uh, according to Damascus itself, I have given birth to the centuries, one after another. Time itself has turned gray, for it could not catch up with my longevity. Damascus existed before time, and so had to deal with the burden of history. This is not a rhetorical question. Does my description allow you to imagine or recall, if you know Damascus, geography and aspects of the topography and landscape? Does it? Does my description in words bring about a sense of historicity, longevity, uh, longevity diversity, and a stratigraphy at layers of history? Does my, do my words allow you to conjure up images, views, or a map, or any visual representation of Damascus in your head? Yes. Do they perhaps activate your olfactory sense, allowing you to recall smells, the season of the roses, the, the orange blossoms? Uh, in short, uh, are words as a medium of representation of space enough for the reader or listener to experience the space sensuously, realistically, or even aesthetically? Is it enough? The answer is, of course, yes. Is of course. Words and language define us as homo sapiens and dis distinguish us from other species. Yet, yet, despite a general appreciation of good prose and poetry everywhere in the world, in the West, when it comes to the representations of space, the image, whether an abstracted image such as a map or a realistic representation such as a landscape painting, takes precedence. Maps are valued for their scientific abstraction, while landscapes for their illusionism and their goal to be realistic. So, so it is unlikely that you recognize the name Leonardo Bruni. How many of you know Leonardo Bruni? Great. <laughs> Who composed a beautiful poem describing Florence uh, in the 15th century and exerted influence all, of, all over Europe and even later Latin America. We have a Latin Americanist here, I know. Um, um, uh, Latin Americans uh, describe Mexico City in the same, uh, or having been inspired by this poem. 
But you most likely have heard of Giovanni Bellini or Leonardo da Vinci. True? Yes. And may have even seen their paintings uh, that relate to space. I don't know if you know these, but these are the ones that I found on the internet, the honest truth. <laughs> um, um, this is because, why do you recognize names of artists, but you don't recognize names of authors who describe space? This is because those of us who were educated in the West think of the Renaissance, which is literally the rebirth, that is the period roughly between the 14th and 17th centuries as the pinnacle of cultural achievement and civilizational progress, when painting reached new heights with the development of perspective and its realism at the hands of individual creators, the geniuses that we know today, whose names we recognize today. Indeed, it was during that period that painting began to be defined as art. Before that, it was not art. To put the equation simplistically, we tend to think of painting almost synonymously with art. We tend to think that art defines the Renaissance, and we tend to think that the Renaissance is a great uh, period of cultural efflorescence that is unique to Europe. Are you with me? Are you yeah. with me? Yes. What I'm going to do today, this is, when, this is my proposition right now is to establish two separate but related processes. I will try to find an equivalence between the Arabic word and the Western image to show that the birth of Arabic textual descriptions of Damascus, that is descriptions of Damascus that have been written, right? The sentence from which I started my talk, I quoted from these, that those descriptions reflect historical processes similar to those that occurred in Renaissance Europe when landscape painting was born, right? And landscape painting, by the way, later will produce cityscapes. So landscape is of nature, cityscapes are of the cities, right? And so landscape painting was born in the 15th century, cityscapes are the 17th century, at least according to what secondary sources tell me. I have not done research in it. And so um, uh, let me be clear, I'm not trying to say that like Europe, uh, Arabs had a renaissance before the 19th century. But what I'm trying to do is find in the word or the text a representational power of value, the same as the image, but also one indicating significant socioeconomic change. The second related process that I'm trying to establish is if landscape painting signaled the idea of the artist in Europe, the written description of Damascus, what I call prose cityscapes, this written description signaled the idea of the scholar or the alim in the, middle, in the Islamic Middle East. The one used his brush and canvas and the other used his, his pen and text. So I will begin with exploring the relationship between landscape painting, the idea of the artist, and socioeconomic transformations in Renaissance Europe. Then. We're going through, oh, it's not a very long talk, but we're going through a lot. So we're going to visit the Renaissance and how landscape, how landscape painting signaled the idea of an artist and how landscape, the emergence of landscape actually is reflective of particular socioeconomic transformations, right? So one, that's I want to demonstrate with you, it's not my own scholarship. Then I will turn to Damascus to expose a relationship between the textual or written cityscape 
the idea of the scholar or alim and the socioeconomic transformations of the period, which is the 12th century action. This transformation, I will argue, occurred as a result of the movement from the caliphal to the sultanate regimes, from the caliphal polity, the khilafa, the caliphate, to the sultana, sultanate. And I'm gonna, for those who don't know, I will, I will take you through this. I will do this by focusing on the author of the first truly articulated written description of Damascus, that of the scholar Ibn Asakir of the 12th century, and the conditions under which he wrote during the rule of the Sultan Nuruddin Zengi. After I established the parallel between European artists and Arab Alam, between the 12th century Levant and Renaissance Europe, I will take you to Ibn Asakir's description of Damascus to see why this text came to define a new genre, a new genre, like landscape painting, and how this foundational text inaugurated an entire tradition of representing Damascus till the 20th century. Um, what I'm trying to say is that both prose cityscape and the painted landscape represented space uh, or the birth of these genres, the painted landscape and the written cityscape, represent, uh, represent a space in secular time and in the here and now. In the Islamic world, it's in the 12th century. In Renaissance Europe, it's the 15th century. Thereafter, I will visit two more cityscapes, uh, one by Ibn Shaddad in the 13th century and one by Ibn al-Badri in the 15th century, both of whom write descriptions that are informed by Ibn Asakir. The point of visiting these later Arabic prose cityscape is to show you how this prose cityscape had become a tradition and how will, I will treat each of them like a painted cityscape, but also as a travel guide offering us not only a vision of the city, but the paths of walking through the city itself. In the end, I want to show you basically that by neglecting the tradition of textual representations of Damascus and other Islamic city, cities, we are not only missing out on the actual history of these cities, but also an acknowledgement and understanding of a tradition, a tradition of representations and memorialization that animates the city, a tradition that needs to be valued as such. If Renaissance painted paintings are canonized, we have not canonized our own you know, representations in the same way, or not even the same way, just to recognize them. Are you with me? Are you following my argument? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so let us start with Europe, the European context first. The idea of landscape that is an image of space that is supposed to be an exact likeness to it, like a window unto that space, is, as I said, a Renaissance invention. It took the technical ability of artists like da Vinci and Bellini to be able to master the sensuous arrangement of space in perspective. According to the father of Renaissance studies, Jakob Burkhardt, a 19th century Swiss historian, and really he's one of the main people who invented the idea of the Renaissance, he describes landscapes, landscape painting like this. He says, in the beginning of the 15th century, a new spirit entered into painting of the West. Though still employed in the service of the church, principles were henceforth developed quite unconnected with the program given simply by the church. A work of art now gives more than is required by the church. It presents a copy of the real world. Think of Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel. 
It's very religious, but then there is an absolute attempt at likeness, right? At exact likeness. So he continues, uh, a new feeling for space grows up. Instead of simply indicating localities as far as necessary to be intelligible, we now find a real landscape and a real architecture given more or less in perspective. So before the Renaissance, when there were paintings or religious or otherwise, are mostly religious, if you wanted to show Jerusalem, you will, you'll, you'll find a symbol of a place that it is Jerusalem, right? And people will understand tell, you know, that this is Jerusalem. But it's not a landscape of Jerusalem. It's not realistic. It's just for the viewer to see, ah, I'm in Jerusalem or I'm in Constantinople, right? So it was always just a symbol of some sort that makes you think of space rather than it being arranged realistically, right? So the birth of landscape painting, according to Burkhardt, occurred at the moment that the individual is finally freed from the church. This is significant. The painter now is construed as a secular, independent creator who molds the real world into images. So he's separate from God right now in a very simplistic way. In short, he is now an artist who is, uh, his own creative powers are put into creating an image. Um, in earlier times, the painter was merely an artisan in a workshop, a skilled laborer who created generic objects, which were not considered individual creations. It was only in the 15th century that some artisan painters be be began to be seen as creating unique objects, not generic, unique objects, distinguishable by the painter's individual style. The scholar Larry Shiner, he even dates the, the discovery of the artist at a later time. Shiner argues that the concept of the artist does not take its definitive feature until as late as the 17th century with the creation of the Académie, Académie Royale de Peinture, which was the Royal Academy for Painting and Sculpture in Paris. Shiner insists that before the 17th century, the famous Italian, Spanish, German, and Dutch artists whose names we recognize today were only a few and only marginally separated from artisanal workshops. These famous people like Michelangelo, uh, Velasquez, etc., they managed to get a status of in between the artisan and the artist through handsome commissions by popes and princes. Believe me, I don't know anything about this. I'm relating to you what the scholarship says, and it, it's very convenient for me. So um, it was only with this opening of the Académie Royale that artists as artists were able to sell their paintings in an open art market. So what Shana is saying, to be commissioned to do a, a painting, even if you're doing non-church, non-secular painting, you're not really an artist. It is only when you are in an open, basically capitalist market, where you, you can actually sell your paintings in competition with other painters, that's when you're really an artist, according to this scholar, okay? So uh, it was only with the opening, okay. When the artist was born, whether we want to talk about him in the 15th century, according to Burkhardt, or the 17th century, according to Shiner, is neither here nor there, I don't care about that. What I'm interested in is the fact of an intrinsic relationship between the emergence of the genre of landscape painting, the emergence of the idea of the painter as an artist, and their constitution as definitive attributes of the Renaissance. As a historian who's interested in understanding cultural transformation, 
that, wrote, that, that brought about landscape painting and the idea of the painter as a creative, I'm just not convinced that Da Vinci woke up one day and decided he was not uh, ordered by God. I'm just not, in, I'm not, uh, con you know, I'm not convinced by Burkhardt, basically. Um, I found a reasonable explanation in the work of the geographer, Dennis Cosgrove. So it took a geographer, someone who knows earth and the, and the ground, um, who offers a social and material understanding. Cosgrove sees the birth of landscape painting in the 15th century as a, as a sign of a new social formation. It is about a new arrangement of individuals and groups in the social order and in their relationship to resources, most significantly to land. To put it simplistically, this period witnessed the slow commodification of land resulting from the demise of the feudal order and the passage to capitalism. This transformation led to different attitudes towards land and a change of relationship between city and country. So now that land is commodified, you can parcel it, see it as a separate thing, and put it in a picture. I mean, at least that's how Cosgrove describes it. Um, so thus far, I have been exposing the emergence of the genre of landscape painting in 15th century Europe. Um, uh, and I should also mention that cityscapes, which are paintings of cities, emerges two centuries later, um, and, uh, and um, uh, specifically in the 17th century in Netherlands. Um, uh, okay, so let me go back. For your information, that's a good thing. I should mention the painted cityscapes as opposed to landscape, and cityscape being the view of a town or city as illusionistic environment with a real likeness containing buildings, monuments, and figures, does not become a genre until the 17th century in the Netherlands with the works of van der Treiden and Vermeer that you see, I think some of you may be familiar with them. Um, and in Venice, not until the 18th century, with uh, Carle Verige and Canaletto. Um, the appearance of the cityscape is also related to social change, a time of new economic vitality uh, or political transition. 17th century Netherlands was undergoing a period of political strength. We're talking about colonialism here. Um, and then, and so there was a huge, intense urbanization and this is how it's explained that, that it came up in the 17th century. And in, in Venice, although there was a political decline, Venice was starting to be seen as the jewel of Europe and everybody was going to Venice to visit on the Grand Tour as the most beautiful thing. For me, the cityscapes are important only for comparative purposes because it's easier to compare cities, painted cityscapes to written cityscapes, right? Um, actually, the original moment, which is the landscape, is much more important for my argument, but this is just to show you. It is under strikingly similar conditions as those of the emergence of landscape in, and, uh, uh, landscape in Western art that a complete and articulated image of Damascus is produced, but this takes place in the 12th century. You're listening to Arab Voices, coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. What we are listening to is a lecture titled Damascus, A History in Words by Professor Dana Sajdi, a prominent historian teaching at Boston College. She delivered that lecture on November 11, 2021 at the Arab American Educational Foundation Paul Cardouche Annual Memorial Lecture at the University of Houston. The event was organized by the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston. Let's continue listening to that lecture. 
Damascus, which has been the capital of the first Islamic empire under the Umayyad Caliphate, had been dethroned in the middle of the 8th century and superseded by glittering new city Abbasid Baghdad. Damascus remained a relative backwater until the 12th century when the anti-crusading hero Nur al-Din Zengi united Syria and took it upon himself to reinvigorate the city, turning it into a thriving metropolis again. It was under new conditions of political stability and economic prosperity that a general renewed confidence that the famous scholar Ibn Asakir rendered the first image of Damascus full and complete. But unlike his Dutch and Italian counterparts, of course, he um, depicted it in words. And before I talk about Ibn Asaka's image, let me explain the new socioeconomic realities and how and what allowed Ibn Asaka and his uh, cityscape to, to emerge at that particular point in time. The breakup of the Abbasid Caliphate in the 10th century and its eventual demise in the 13th century opened the door for the new polity of the Sultanate. The Caliphate, Khilafa, Khalifa means successors of the Prophet. They descended from the house of the Prophet. The sultans were not related to the Prophet. Most often than not, more often than not, they were of Turkic, Kurdish, or other background. They could not even claim to be related to the Prophet. So they are called sultans. It means they are the ones who have uh, temple power. Sultan, Sultan, the one who has temple. So the Khalifa, which is the Umayyads and the Abbasids, were descendants of the Prophet and political and religious authority inhered in them, right? But the sultans were great military men and great believers, but they could not claim the religious authority that the caliphs had. Sorry. So um, the earliest representatives of the sultanic regimes are the Saljuks or the Salajika, and it is the Saljuks that created tem a template for the regimes of sultanates that followed them. Most of these post-caliphal sultanic regimes were Turkic, sometimes Kurdish, but their claim to sultanate is that they could not, uh, their claim to the sultanate, they could not claim the kind of religious authority that the Umayyads and the Abbasid, even the Fatimids of Egypt uh, and North Africa had. Sultans, unlike caliphs, did not descend from the family of the Prophet. I explained all of that to you, but here is the important moment. Lacking in natural religious authority, Sultanic regime came up with the genius solution, the institution of waqf or endowment. And here, endowment, which is a charitable endowment, waqf, in order to establish religious authority and to memorialize themselves in the built environment, sultans endowed public amenities for the use of the general public, including mosques, caravanserais, Sufi lodges, and most importantly, for our purposes, the colleges and madrasas. So cities became stages for building frenzies and sites for the erection of great monumental architecture and magnificent structures. And the Damascus of Sultan Nur al-Din Zengi exemplified just that. Sultan Nur al-Din's building pro program in Damascus, for those who know it, the, you know, you've heard of Al-Madrasa Nuriya, Al-Bimaristan Al-Nuri, uh, which is the hospital, Dar al-Hadith Al-Nuriya, you've heard of all these things. This program of building in Damascus was unprecedented and perhaps unsurpassed. Even the Ayyubids, even the Ayyubids, and even the great uh, Mamluk government tankers who built a lot in Damascus, and even the regime of Al-Azm in the 18th century did not produce as many buildings by a single ruler. 
These buildings and structures commissioned by Nur al-Din, of course, did not just create themselves and were not empty. Somebody had to oversee their finances, construction, services, upkeep, management, and occupy positions in them. The Kardush in that lecture does not happen by itself. You have to have people to manage it and, and do things around it. So the Sultan looked to that segment of the population that literally knew better the ulama, <laughs> the people who know, literally. And so, um, who are the scholars? Historically, this group of men and some women were literate individuals who were preoccupied with the study of religious, the religious sciences and who were an amorphous group without a corporate group identity. However, with the creation of the new institution of Waqf, the ulama had the opportunity to run and occupy positions in the, the new endowments, whether as overseers, sermonists, judges, leaders to prayers, jurists, and more significantly, as teachers and professors. It is through the institution of Waqf that the ulama were professionalized. They became salaried scholar with a, scholars with a distinct corporate identity, and they competed in a more or less open job market. So if the Académie Royale signaled the birth of the artists, the Académie Islamique or the Massin signaled the birth of the Alam, the scholar in the 12th century. It is about this field of competition where people competed for jobs that were salaried. So what we have in the 12th century, at least when it comes to Damascus, is a moment that is very similar to that of the Renaissance. The establishment of the regime of the Sultanate brought about the use of waqf as a strategy, that is the charitable endowment as a strategy, a strategy that changed channels on investment and flow of wealth, which in turn drastically altered the topography of the city because they had to parcel out revenue from the countryside, parcel out things to bring money back to the city to, uh, to organize this thing. So what we're talking about is a, as a result of the built environment, uh, okay, so, uh, as a result, the built environment came to carry meanings beyond the utility of the specific building. Structures became indicators of good rule and proper functioning of the social order. The, the city became an intense source of identification, especially, especially for the ulama, who began to portray the city in loving representations. In short, this moment represents a new social formation, even a new social contract. It represents a new relationship to land and to the city, and inaugurates the alam as a hegemonic cultural figure, just, the artist, just as the artist had become the cultural icon of the Renaissance. Basically, both the Muslim man or woman of knowledge and the European painter had existed before the 12th and the 15th or 17th centuries respectively, but they had not had a separate defined identity. The alam had been, in the words of Marshall Hodgson, a piety-minded figure, while the European artist had been an artisan. I will show you soon how, like the artist, the alam represented space in secular time. Are you with me? Yes. <laughs> Lest I be misunderstood, I am not claiming that 12th century transformation represented the passage to capitalism in the Middle East. I am not an economic historian. I still count on my fingers. I have no arithmetic skills at all. But it is clear to me that there was a significant socioeconomic and political transformation that rearranged the positions of individuals and groups in relation to resources as the revenues from the countryside became parceled out and dedicated to buildings of a new urban landscape. 
I don't know what to call this, waqfadization, whatever it is, I think it's worthy of study that it's not just a political transformation, this is a new social contract. And that's what I would like other historians to do. I don't have the expertise or the means to do that. So let's go back to Ibn Asakir, who wrote the foundational cityscape of Damascus in the 12th century. You might not be surprised to know that Ibn Asakir wrote his masterful description of Damascus under the patronage of none other than the Sultan Nur al-Din al-Zengi, the same guy who rebuilt Damascus. It, it's not a surprise. The ruler even endowed an entire college for the instruction of hadith, the first, the first of its kind in the entire Islamic world, especially for Ibn Asakir to occupy a position. So the, yeah, he, uh, he opened Harvard for him, right? <laughs> uh, so the relationship between Ibn Asakir, the scholar, and Nur al-Din, the Sultan, on the one hand, and their positions literally in the city, one is the builder and the other is the builder of the Dar al-Hadith, the, the, the Hadith College, and the other is the occupier of the professorship, is a clear demonstration, demonstration of the new social contract, a contract whose evidence is found in the very topography of the city. Now that I schematized this relationship, let me visit uh, the foundational description of Damascus itself, a part of the voluminous 82-volume work by Ibn Asakir called Tariqh Medinat Dimashq, or the history of the city of Damascus. The description occupies the first volume, or actually the second volume. It is not that the pe that people had not described Damascus or other cities before Ibn Asakir. In the 11th century, someone by the name of Rabai expounded the religious virtues of Damascus, trying to relate, to relate biblical stories and Islamic events to the geography of the city. So, you know, uh, Virgin Mary and Jesus were here hiding from uh, whatever in this cave, or Abraham and whatever did this, you know, so it's so biblical stories that are related to the geography. That was always an important genre called Fada'il, which is the religious virtues of the cities, and that was the common genre before Ibn Asakir. Um, also, in the 11th century, Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi described Baghdad, and it was a wonderful survey, but Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi was thinking of Baghdad in the, old good, in the good old days. He was not describing it in the here of now. It was a very, uh, how do you call it, uh, nostalgic uh, look. Ibn Asakir, although he's informed by both Al-Rabi'i and uh, Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi and many other people, he was just like this uh, walking encyclopedia, uh, he does something entirely different um, he offers a comprehensive survey of the city from the perspective of the walker, right? Let me give you an example. This is the beginning of my description. The first mosque from the side of the market as you enter Bab al-Jabiyya is an upper level mosque known as a Saqatiyin Mosque. It has a stone stairway and a wooden stairway had been made, and a wooden stairway had been made for it on its building to the north side. It has a leader to prayers, a caller to prayers, and it's attached to an endowment. It is a big mosque, a mosque in Darb al-Madaniyin. It is a lower level uh, building. In it is an olive tree. It has a leader to prayers, a caller to prayers, a library, and is attached to an endowment. It is nice, Latif. Okay. <laughs> um, he goes on like this to go through 242 mosques of the city, yeah, yeah, I mean, these are, uh, they're not extant, they don't survive. I, I, I'm just, um, it's the hypothetical, uh, it's not, they don't survive. Then he turns to a survey of the churches and synagogues, 
of this uh, the one synagogue of the city and these are also yeah uh, this is from that time then he turns to the canals rivers and bathhouses gates and the cemeteries and shrines of the city this series of surveys allows the reader to meander around the city and see its structures in the reality of the 12th century. This walking itinerary is what I consider, consider the revolutionary and foundational moment in Ibn Asakir's cityscape. By describing the city in the here and now, the author retrieves Damascus into secular space and time exactly as landscape artists had done with the, in the Renaissance. Rather than letting Damascus remain with the realm of the genre of religious virtues, the biblical time, the Islamic events, he's talking about how he's experienced the city in the here and now. So he seizes Damascus from religious time and gives it to later scholars of the city who will follow his lead and describe it in a continuous sequential order. Thus, Ibn Asakir offers not only a new way of talking about the city, but a path to walking it. He opens the door for future scholars, scholars to walk in his footsteps or to devise new itineraries to record, to record the city as it changes and grows. This text then defines the genre of cityscape and allows a whole tradition of local knowledge to accumulate. These are the guys that I'm working on for my current book on Damascus. So, um, now uh, that I established an equivalence between Arabic word and Western image, between alam and artist, between socioeconomic transformations in the Middle East starting in the 12th century and Europe starting in the 15th century, I hope that I have convinced you that the image is not superior to the word as a medium of representation, that the difference between Arabic and European representations are not about capacity and incapacity with regard to art but about a different social orders produced different cultural figures, the alim and the artist, and one knew how to write and the other knew how to paint. And that perhaps it is time that we visit the generally neglected traditions of Arabic cityscapes and evaluate and value them as being more than sources for history, but as representations, paintings, reflecting the proclivities of the authors and the historical moment in which they were produced. I will now expose you to two more representations to show you how the view of the city changes over time. The first is from the 13th century in the early, in the very early Mamluk period, and the second is on the is from in the 15th century, before the Ottoman conquest of Damascus. Are you with me? Okay. Ibn Shaddad was a Damascene scholar, uh, but served in the Mamluk bureaucratic offices in Cairo. He had fled Syria due to the Mongol invasion and consequently missed Syria and wrote a very large survey of Damascus, Aleppo, and Jazeera. His Damascus cityscape includes Ibn Asakir's entire uh, text verbatim. It's like, yeah, here, copy-paste, right? Within, uh, within it, while updating the information by adding the structures that had been built since Ibn Asakir because a whole century had passed. By his time, the colleges or the madrasas were so plentiful that Ibn Shaddad counts up to 70 colleges inside and outside the city walls. And these are only the remaining ones from that period. Only the remaining ones. There's many, many more to come, right? Um, Ibn Shaddad, however, does not stop at enumerating colleges. He further mentions the Indawar, 
and every single uh, the, the person who endowed the building and every single scholarly occupant of the position in the college since the time of its endowment. Let me give you uh, an example of Al-Adiliya Al-Kubra, it's a college. The first who taught uh, it is, uh, in it is Jamal al-Din al-Masri, the chief judge of Damascus. After him came Shamsuddin al-Khuyi, the chief judge. The position had been allocated to his son. Then it was forcibly occupied by Rafi al-Din al-Jiri. Then Kamal al-Din al-Tiflisi held class in it on behalf of the chief judge, Shahab al-Din al-Khuyi. Then it was exclusively occupied by the aforementioned Kamal al-Din until he left to Egypt. Najm al-Din ibn Sani al-Dawla held the class in it. After him, the teacher was Shams al-Din al-Khallikan, ibn Khallikan. Then after him came the chief judge of Damascus, Izz al-Din Muhammad bin Sharaf al-Din Abdul Qadir ibn Sa'ir, who occupies the position until today. This entry of a single college, remember, he's doing 70 colleges, so that's all I was reading. This uh, entry of one single college enumerates eight scholars who were also chief judges um, in a chain of continuous serial progression from the first occupant to the scholar incumbent. Every single entry on every college, more than 70 of them, has the same definition of the place by people who occupied it in an in uninterrupted continuity Continuity, so it's just names, names, names of people. With this kind of description, Ibn Shaddad is not only depicting Damascus like Ibn Asakir, but also its people, or rather, its scholarly elite. So this is not only a new cityscape where colleges have been, had begun to, to occupy the topography, but it is filled with figures recognizable, uh, recognizable and identifiable figures. Thus, if Ibn Asakir's tableau looks like Canaletto's rendition of Venice, when the buildings are the focus, Ibn Shaddad's looks like a Bellini rendition with all the officialdom in view in a sequence. With this amazing tableau of the colleges of Damascus, Ibn Shaddad was promoting a relatively new Damascene brand, what I call Ivy League education as attested by the digital social maps produced by a colleague of mine, Maxime Romanov, starting with the endowment of Nuruddin, Damascus not only recovered, but rose to become the foremost center of culture and learning in the entire Islamic world, eclipsing Baghdad. So if you get these times and the maps, the maps show the number of scholars, so the bigger the, the, bigger the uh, circle, the larger the number of scholars who emerge from the city. So if you see in the 13th century, Damascus overtakes, so there was in the, in the 10th, late, in the early 11th century, there was like a, 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 all the different um, cities had uh, importance. Then you go to the 12th century, you see the Levant is becoming more important. And the 13th century, it is really without uh, without competition, it's Damascus. Um, and of the most prominent colleges in the Islamic world, in the 11th, 12th, and into the 13th century, this figure shows uh, uh, where the scholars, which are the most important colleges, right? So Al-Nizamiya and Mustansiriya are from Baghdad, right? Uh, and Nasiriya is from Cairo, but the rest are in Damascus. Um, so five of the eight most important universities in the Islamic world were in Damascus. In every single, okay, so we're done with this. 13th century is about colleges and about Damascus being the most important center of education in the Islamic world. 
In every single prose description of Damascus, there is a report about the city being one of the four heavens on earth. Indeed, Damascus' reputation for verdant beauty did not escape either Ibn Asakir or Ibn Shaddad. Both authors mention the report and quote all kinds of poetry extolling its beauty, but they do not treat Damascus' nature as a landscape to be depicted. Their position as scholars and their interest as a professional class lay elsewhere. It took the little-known late 15th century enchanted poet, the only non-scholar in my whole sample that you've seen, um, Ibn al-Badri, to advertise Damascus's beautiful nature extensively and to succumb entirely to the city's pleasures. In Ibn al-Badri's text, for the first time, the gardens and pleasure uh, parks of the city are introduced into the prose cityscape. And this is, the, I located the number of uh, picnic spots and parks that he mentions. And through his pen, the city is picnicable to boot. Here is what Ibn al-Badri has to say about one of the pleasure parks of, of the city. Of the beauties of Damascus is the park known as Al-Jabha. It is a square piece of land of approximately two fiddans or, or acres. It has pavilions for shade built between walnut and white poplar trees. Every matted seating area is surrounded by creeks from all four sides with ponds and pools and fountains. It is located on the bank of the Barada River and has water wheels. It has shops for meat carvers, butchers, cooks, mezze preparers, and fruit sellers and others. It has a mosque and two colleges and a place for pack animals. It also has, a ca has canteen keepers who attend to the people or picnickers and who have quilts, mats, and cloaks for those who stay overnight with them and desire to sleep. People used to go on picnics for days on end. Uh, this is the first time that any uh, author takes us out into nature to visit the orchards and gardens. While Ibn Asakir etched the buildings on the canvas, Ibn Shaddad added elite scholars as figures in the landscape, Ibn al-Badri adds the parks and pleasure gardens of Damascus. These are parks as enjoyed by people, regular people. This is a beautiful Damascus and this is finally a lived city. It is lived by regular people who sit on a mat to enjoy a view and who care about plentiful good food and staying comfortable and warm while spending a few days in the outdoors. So if Ibn Shaddad's rendition looked like the Bellinis, Al-Badri's is more like Karlivarij. The latter is not a promotional or formal image, but one that is delightfully enjoyed and unabashedly celebrated with the most evocative details. This is a happy Damascus that is liberated from the burden of its history. We have visited many aspects of the natural and built environments of Damascus. Mosques, churches, bathhouses, colleges, and parks and gardens. The alert listener will have noticed the conspicuous, the conspicuous absence of one of the most important elements of any city. Can you guess? What, 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 have, what did you not hear about? Uh, not men, actually, <laughs> it, actually, Mamluk uh, women were very much a part of this thing, but they didn't write. Uh, uh, we haven't heard about houses, right? We heard about, uh, okay. And so nobody mentions houses contemporary to the authors. One could jump into the hasty conclusion that the absence of houses in these portrayals is portrayals attributable to a social value such as inviolability of the domestic space or fear, fear of flaunting the private. However, this is not true because in the same period, the same authors will mention houses in their other books and their chronicles. 
So it's not that houses were, were uh, inviolable. There's something about this genre, this cityscape, that does not allow houses to come in, which means that the scholars um, did not write about houses, uh, did not write about the private, especially to emphasize the public. So the whole idea is that the celebration of Damascus by these people is about its publicness. It's the places where they bathe together, where they pray together, where they talk together, where they um, uh, traded together, where they uh, did pilgrimages together. So it is about the collective. It is not about the private. And it is about the execution of the social contract, which is they are endowed public places, the private house is your own house, right? It's about the civic new social contract where the ulama were a part of the urban landscape and they were there to memorialize and keep up with the city basically till the 20th century. To conclude, I started with an evocation of Damascus as geography and history through the use of words, mine and the authors of cityscapes. In identifying and tracing this long tradition, I'm not only writing a new history of Damascus over centuries and, um, and a history that allows readers to walk and explore the city exactly as its citizens, or at least some of them, wrote it and wanted us to remember it. As significantly, I want to see this long tradition as an archive of deliberately carved and intently curated ensemble of cityscapes written by the cultural icons of the Arabic text ulama. I want to see Damascus presented as one would see a painted archive of Venice in a museum. I repeat that I'm not interested in inaugurating a 12th century Arabic Renaissance, but I'm hoping that other historians see in the transformation from caliphates to sultanates in the Arab Middle East a worthwhile subject of expression beyond the paradigm of the arrival of the Turks. And for your information, in a tacit agreement with the authors of the tradition and as, and as a sign of uh, respect, I will refrain from using images in my book, neither maps nor images. Rather, I want to continue a tradition in words exactly as I had started my talk. Thank you. What you just heard was a lecture titled Damascus, a History in Words, by Professor Dana Sajdi, a prominent historian teaching at Boston College. She delivered that lecture on November 11, 2021, at the Arab American Educational Foundation Paul Cardouche Annual Memorial Lecture at the University of Houston. The event was organized by the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth.
are listening to KBOO Portland. The following program is a special encore rebroadcast for these unique pandemic times. Dates, times, and events mentioned in the following program have already occurred and are no longer relevant. The more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well. So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything. Dominion means stewardship, to take care of. What would a cow think about satisfying our habit? The challenge lies with looking at suffering from the perspective of the person or individual suffering. Mm-hmm. 